Over the last uh, few months, if you haven't been with us, uh, at Christchurch Hillsville, we've been quite methodically going through this letter, 1 Peter, verse by verse. It's been quite slow at times, and, uh, but we're going to get there. I think we've got maybe two weeks to go, so uh, just breathe a sigh of relief for that. So what we, have we been learning? And how useful is it to read a letter which is really nearly 2,000 years old, written to a bunch of churches that were scattered by persecution from Emperor Nero, uh, and they'd scattered to the northern area of Turkey that we now know uh, today. One of the big themes of the letter has been that of suffering and surviving, if you like, as a Christian in what was then and is now a hostile world to the Christian. Now, the vehicle of suffering has definitely changed, hasn't it? But the enduring truth that Christians, at every moment in history, in every place in history, that enduring truth that Christians will suffer for their faith is as true today as it was then. If we live out our faith, if we make Christ known, we will suffer. It was true in AD 62 to AD 63, under the persecution of Emperor Nero, that's when this letter was written, and is equally true today in secular Britain. The vehicle of suffering has changed, but that enduring truth has not. Many of you know that, and many of you live in that truth today, and it's hard, isn't it, sometimes? So is this kind of, if you look at the title I put, I don't know if you've noticed that. I, I wonder if you think, that is that an ironic title that I've put there? Am I pulling your leg a little bit? You know, to say that this is the enviable life, given that really quite joyous introduction. Is it the enviable life to live as a Christian? Well, actually, I think it's quite a fair representation of this passage, but I think of the letter as a whole, actually. For although this letter has taught us, taught us much about suffering... The rea- that, and that, that reality, I don't think any would, any would envy us for the reality that face, faces many Christians, that of suffering and trial. But this book goes, I think, a little bit further. And to use something which uh, one of our congregation who is not here says, it takes us to the next level. Because I don't think Christians are just called to survive simply. I think what we'll see today is that in our trial, in our suffering, we're not called to just cling on and grimace. We're called to rejoice in that suffering and be effective in those trials. Not to be kind of muted in the trial uh, and just sort of say, oh God, I don't dare say anything now because someone's daring to kind of mock my faith. Uh, No, we're to rejoice And that rejoicing is the enviable life that we're going to look into now because it comes and it is beyond our earthly dreams, I think. The family and I were having dinner this week with a a very old friend and at one point she she began to note, she travels a lot um, around the world seeing situations of deprivation. Uh, She works for a kind of relief organisation, which she used to anyway. And she's seen desperate circumstances, desperate issues of suffering for Christians But her poignant observation was this. And she noted that in those extraordinary dark places throughout the world, Christians again and again and again were bright lights. 
demonstrating their joy in the Lord Jesus Christ. But more than that, they were growing lights, is the phrase to use. That is, that the church in those situations of suffering and trial and, and pain were bulging at the seams. They were living this joyful life, if you like, through and above the circumstances which they faced. And as a result, I guess they were the envy of those around them. Because they built their life on a different cornerstone, to use a one Peter kind of phrase. They built their life on Christ. They were living that enviable life on him. I guess Spurgeon was right, a great preacher, when he said this, the tears of affliction are often needed to keep the eye of faith bright. The tears of affliction are often needed to keep the eye of faith bright. Now think about it just for a moment in your own life. Just for a second. Recall in your life perhaps a time when life was, let's say, fairly easy. All those aspects of your life that you love to be able to fit into place. They, everything seemed to work out. You know, the job was good. The money was good. The, the, the relationship, the house. Everything seemed to fit into place. Think of that moment if it has been. It may not have been. But where things just seem to fit into place, call it a period of ease if you like. And at that moment, did you feel close to God then? Call it an observation, I think many of us would say it's a testimony of our own lives as well. And I think what we'll see here as well in this passage, that when you have that kind of ease in this life now, it doesn't naturally draw us close to God, does it? I think what we'll find is actually the earthly ease and that lasting eternal joy brought about through times of trial and suffering, they rarely come together, do they, in our lives? <coughs> the great Scottish uh, Puritan preacher Samuel Rutherford, I think, put this better than any of us ever possibly could. And I've just been lingering on this quote for the last few weeks. He said this, I accept being put into the cellars of suffering. Because the great king keeps his wine there. Isn't that brilliant? See, life may be quite easy for you right now. But as you begin to make Christ known, as you begin to, in obedience to his word, set apart Christ as Lord. Do you remember that from chapter 3, verse 15? And also being prepared to... Give a reason for the hope that you have, again, from that, that verse in chapter 3, verse 15. As you begin to do that... You will need to be prepared for some uneasiness in your life. There'll be some affliction. There'll be some trial, I guess, some suffering. And through that, we need to rise above that trial, that affliction, that suffering. And enjoy that wine, that blessing of our King Jesus. The alternative is this. You get consumed by the circumstance, the suffering, the trial. You know, things aren't just working out. And you're just, that'll be your every moment. Oh, it's not happened again. And you'll feel pity on yourself. <coughs> Do you want to be that? Do you want that to be you? I don't, I don't think any of us actually intends that in our lives, do we? Uh, we, we don't want to lack joy. Self-pity is quite an ugly character trait, isn't it? We know that. 
And we don't want it, I think, generally. We want to rise above the circumstances of our lives and the struggles. We want to be, as we're looking at Romans 8, have you seen it? Remember that? We're more than conquerors in Christ, literally overwhelmingly conquering every moment and always will be. But how are we going to do that? Well, there's three principles from our passage today, which I think will help us. Let's have a look at them. They're on your sheets there, if you can. There are three written down there. I, I guess they will help us to live what either could be an exhausting life of self-pity, of disappointment, lack of joy, or the enviable life. I hope you want the latter. Three principles, very quickly. First principle, don't be surprised by your trials. We see that in verse 12 and 13. Why don't you just cast your eyes down there if you can. Just have a quick kind of skim read through those. Don't be surprised by your trials. Peter in his letters has mentioned all kinds of trials, even from chapter 1, verse 6 and 7, kind of onwards. It's been flickering the whole way through the letter. But here in chapter 4, I think... Have a look. I think you'll see there's a specific kind of suffering for the Christian, a specific trial that Peter has in mind. You'll see it there because it's in verse 14. It's because of the name of Christ. Do you see that? It is suffering for being a Christian. And we see also, look at it in verse 12, it is a painful trial. Peter's not underestimating what it's like in your office places, in your work. In your relationships, maybe, some of you. It cuts right to the heart of who you are. And we can assume, I think, from this, that it's equally painful for Peter. I think, you see, in many of the New Testament writers, they write about what is their great weakness. And I think Peter is exposing that in himself here a little bit. I guess it's the trial he feared the most. Hence, if you remember back in Mark 8, do you remember that, when... um, Jesus begins to sort of mention that if he would be walking towards Jerusalem, that would involve suffering and also for his followers. Take up your cross and follow me and, and many other verses in that kind of Mark 8.31 following section. You know it well. Peter's rebuked. He's taken aside by Jesus. He exposes his own fear there, doesn't he? I guess he feared what people might say and what people might do. And I guess we're not too dissimilar, are we? So he writes in verse 12, do not be surprised. That is, I think what he's saying is that get ready. It's going to happen. Tomorrow maybe, as you invite someone to one of these services coming up, there's going to be some objections to the objections that we're going to you know, tell them about. I guess most of us aren't ready, are we? Therefore, I guess we're not prepared to speak to people. Because I guess, like Peter, we're in fear of what they might say and what they might do. And perhaps our unpreparedness is kind of partly due to the fact that so much is written saying the complete opposite of what's being said here in these verses. In many Christian churches, uh, well, many churches, and many um, kind of books that are written about this kind of stuff, people are saying that the suffering for the Christian is abnormal today. That you should expect everything to, in your life to just kind of fit into place. Everything. You tell people about the gospel and they're going to give you a nice big hug because that's what the love of God does in our culture. 
And, you know, and, and that everything in your life will be mapped out. You'll get the great house, you'll get the great car. Everything will be right and lovely. Even your relationships. Marriage is a doddle, isn't it? Really? Well, look what Jesus said about the Christian life, especially living your life out as a Christian. In John 15, for example, no servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. Was Jesus wrong? Is he telling fibs at this point? Later on in John 16, he says, In this world you will have trouble. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Is Jesus misleading Christians here? He's saying, for you guys, you know, we're a kind of the exception to the rule. If you go and tell your friends about Jesus and invite them to a guest, they'll, they'll love you for it. They might even bake you a cake. No. Don't be ridiculous. Are we just unprepared because we've been listening to the wrong voice? Now, Christians, we don't look for trials, do we? We don't look for difficulties. We don't go, oh, come on, give me a good you know, slap if you can, please, You know, because I'm a Christian. No, we don't. we're not like that. We're not looking. Sinclair Ferguson, when I was reading him on this, he, he said this. He said, we're not to be spiritual bulls in this world's china shop. That's a nice little phrase, isn't it? We're not to go around looking for strife and trial and, str- and struggle and suffering. No. I mean, chapter 3, verse 15, again, is really helpful on this. We're to be gracious, that is, we're to speak with gentleness and respect. There's to be a winsomeness as we invite people and share the gospel with our friends. No arrogance. But the reality is, if we're to remain faithful as Christians to Jesus in his word, we will face hostility. And it will hurt. It will really hurt at times. So I think Peter here is preparing us here. He says, don't be surprised. It's going to hurt. And someone says, no. You're silly. What you think. Don't be surprised by the trial itself, but also by the person who's making your life difficult. Because in them you'll see the nature of the human sinful heart. And if they're hostile to God, they're going to be hostile to the the ambassador of God, namely you. So how can he say, therefore, rejoice in verse verse 13? It does seem a little bit crass, doesn't it, at at that point? Well, we keep rejoicing because the suffering is not a surprise, rather it is a plan. That is, God, the master craftsman, is using these trials, these these difficulties, these sufferings that we might go through as Christians for our testing. Therefore, there's a purpose behind them that is being used by God. It's not meaningless. Verse 19, if you just skip to the end, I'll come back to that at the end, but it kind of gives us the the, the main point there, the output. So it is actually these trials, these uh, sufferings are going to be used so that we might entrust or commit our souls to God. That is the purpose, if you like, of this little passage. But we rejoice firstly, therefore, because we're being refined, tested, probably to make us stronger for even greater trials that will come ahead in the future for us. But moreover, we rejoice because 
in suffering, as it says there in verse 13, we share in the sufferings of Christ. So therefore, when we suffer, when someone says, oh, no way, don't be an idiot, not coming to that, or your face is just, it's just silly. We are sharing, not alone, but we're sharing with the suffering of Christ. We suffer with our Saviour who is in us. Therefore we keep on rejoicing because as we suffer, it is evidence of our union with Christ. More than that, verse 13 goes on, but rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. You see, the suffering acts as hope and assurance of our union with Christ today, that, but that union that will last for eternity, that glory is being revealed in us now through the trial, but it will go on and continue forever. Now, it doesn't look and feel like the enviable life, does it? If it just ends with the suffering today, the trial that may come in the next weeks and months ahead... But I think what this verse 13 does, it brings a kind of a perspective and, and demonstrates really that the, the, the trial is just a breath in comparison to the glory to come. I guess what Peter is doing here is he's trying to realign our expectations. Christians, he's saying, yeah, suffering, guys, it's going to come. Expect it. It's not meaningless. Strange as he puts there, and it's not going to be defeating, but it is planned, it is refining for our faith, it is uniting us with, our, with Christ who is in us, and it is purpose and hope giving for the glory to come. So rejoice, rejoice. I had a hard time at school. Uh, with one friend, I didn't have a hard time particularly at school, but with one friend, he was a real misery, a super intelligent guy, and I sat next to him in maths and further maths and physics and pretty much every subject, and he was super intelligent and would berate me day in, day out for my faith. He's now a Christian, annoyingly, no, rejoice, <laughs> uh, praise God. But the whole way through my uh, sixth form, he would get at me day in, day out. And I remember my Sunday school teacher, who died two weeks ago, a great man called Steve Tyner. He said this, something like this, and he reminded me to say this in my head uh, when my friend was mocking me. And he would say something like this, this isn't about me. This is about Jesus. And right now, I'm to be really grateful that my friend sat next to me in this A-level maths class is, is berating me because he sees something of Jesus in me that he thinks is worth mocking. And that is assurance. And therefore I can rejoice. I thank my Sunday school teacher for his wise words and I think it kind of sums up really what we're saying here in these first couple of verses. So don't be surprised by your trials. Secondly, don't be the cause of your trials. Don't be the cause of your trials. So when you're under pressure as a Christian, when during drinks uh, with your colleagues, uh, with your friends, whatever it may be, over the next few weeks and months, they turn on you. I think the obvious point is don't be the cause of them mocking you, of them giving you a hard time. Don't be the cause of it. 
Peter is saying, don't let your stupidity, your sinful life and your sinful nature be a reason for you to take the slander, to take the trial. Because you cannot rejoice and you cannot be assured in that kind of trial, that suffering. So if you suffer as a murderer, he says, it's pretty obvious here, isn't it? In uh, verse 15, if you suffer as a murderer, you deserve it. Uh, And he goes on, there's many other things. The same is true for the meddler. What does a meddler look like in your workplace? I mean, are you a meddler in your workplace? Maybe in relationships, maybe, I don't know, whatever. Whatever you're doing, meddling, stop it, I think he's saying here. Meddle no more. And don't be the cause of your suffering. Big principle here, though, is that we should not be ashamed of the trial that we're going through. Here, I guess, there are softer tones of Peter coming through. Because I think he's probably writing here with a very heavy heart. Because he was exactly that. He was ashamed of Christ, wasn't he? Remember as he denied Christ three times? When he was in his time of trial, he was ashamed. And Peter's saying, don't be the cause of your trial. But if you do suffer as a Christian, then he's saying the flip side is, know the blessing of that trial, of that suffering. And therefore, the assurance of your faith. You see that in verse 14. Sorry to flip them around that way, but I think it was helpful. So verse 14, if you're insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. Why? Well, it follows. For the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Now, similar language is used here of Stephen's martyrdom in Acts chapter 7, which we did last term, if you remember rightly. Okay? Perhaps Peter is not only alluding to it there in in these words here, but I think probably what he's doing is he's saying... Many commentators will say he's recalling as an eyewitness the words spoken by Stephen. And he's bringing them here to show that as we're insulted because of our ne- by the name of Christ, the spirit of glory and of God will rest on you. So as in Acts chapter 7, in the midst of unbearable trial where Stephen is being stoned, the Spirit of God will so work in our lives to, comfort, to, sorry, to confirm our faith, to solidify our faith, and to show that our trials are not meaningless. But they act actually as a present day assurance of all that glory to come. And that is why Peter calls it the, the, the Spirit of glory. It will be there when we need it, in the amount we need it. As it was for Stephen as his eyes looked up to heaven. And saw Jesus sat at the right hand of his father. I wonder, do you you ever look at others who are going through difficulties and trials and suffering in their lives? Do you ever look at them and say something like, I don't know if I could cope if I had that trial. Not just for being a Christian, but, you know, maybe one of illness and suffering. We have a good friend, Matt, who's going through a terrible time at the moment. Do you ever wonder, would you have the strength to cope in that situation? Do you worry that you wouldn't just be able to get through the next couple of days because it would just overwhelm you? Well, let me tell you, you are right. You wouldn't. And that is the humbling point, I think, of what Peter is mentioning here. Reflecting back to Acts 7, he's saying, it is only in the Spirit, it is only the Spirit of God pointing to, you, uh, pointing to His glory and giving you a taste of His glory. Only that will help you cope in the day that you need it. As it was for Stephen, it will be for you. 
so rejoice. And trust that because God is worth trusting. I, I, don't, I was reflecting over Easter, I was reading a few kind of biographies. I was, would any missionary have ever left our shores you know, and put their, their family in kind of God's hands if they, if they hadn't have just trusted him? No. They didn't know every detail of what was going to happen to them. So trust God. Why? Well, because he keeps his wine in the cellar of suffering, not necessarily in the luxury of houses in Ellsfield. The king's precious wine is kept in the cellar of suffering. You only taste it when you go there and when it is needed. And that is the point here. The glory of God is given when it is needed to give you glimmers of all that is to come. And we're not to resent the taste like a child with a bit of medicine. We're to taste the glory of God now because it will prepare you for the times of suffering ahead when God will say again and again and again and maybe in worse and more difficult times, trust me, trust me. I mean, just think to the, I mean, we don't know when it will be, but just take yourself to the last week of your life and you know that perhaps you're going to die. You don't know what it will be like, but will you be ready? Well, I think what we're seeing here is don't be worried, because the spirit of glory and of God will come. Now, dying is never easy, of course, but God will pour out his glory again and again, and the wine is forever flowing in that cellar of King Jesus. Lastly and thirdly, don't be defeated by your trial. When people mock your faith, and they will, when people try to compromise your faith, and they will, why don't you have another beer? Why don't you, oh, it doesn't matter, just go with a, go with a girl in the office, that'll be fine. Do we stand there and walk away feeling utterly defeated? Willing to give in to the pressure of a secular society, trying to keep us quiet about our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. Again, can you imagine if the missionaries that we know and love and remember were to take that approach? No, verse 16, look at it. Do not be ashamed. That, that ashamed word, actually, you can, that's why I put it in the title, do not be defeated. Don't let it overwhelm you, defeat you, paralyse you. When your friends reject an invitation to come to a guest event, do not be ashamed. Do not be defeated by that. Go on. Continue to invite them or invite others. Anything that moves. No, rather what he's saying is we're not to be defeated. We're to praise God, to glorify God literally there. It is confirming assurance, if you like. You can even say thank you to your friend as they, you know, as they mock you, as they, you know, as they say, no, there's no way I'm coming to anything. You could say thank you to them. As a kind of, uh, it's a confirming assurance that you are declaring Christ and that Christ is in you. So do not be ashamed. Praise God, glorify God. How do we do that? We could do that because through those trials we begin to show the world where actually our treasure is. See, when everything and everybody falls away from you, when they all reject you and say, I'm not coming to this, I'm not doing that, your faith is absolute rubbish, 
No, you begin to see as everything and everybody falls away from you. All the things that made you happy, peel them away. If you have nothing left, no joy, discontentment is is rife in your life and you're miserable, well then you sadly will begin to realise that perhaps they were the thing that was most precious to you rather than the Lord Jesus Christ. But if you lose everything and everyone around you is just saying, oh, you're you're a complete loser for, for following the Lord Jesus Christ and wanting to proclaim Christ, well... After loss, after loss, after rejection, after rejection. If at that same moment you have still joy and contentment in Christ, well, that is when God is most glorified in you. That is when you praise God, when you glorify God. As in verse uh, 17 here. Sorry, 16 here. See, if you can maintain contentedness amid suffering and trial, who gets the glory? God gets the glory and we have the joy for glorifying God and it feels amazing and it is amazing. So don't be defeated by your trials. Verse 17 makes it clear that judgment and trial are definitely going to come to the church, that the judgment of God today begins with the church. That is a refining judgment because he loves us. He will spare nothing to get out of us that which he hates the most, that is our sin and our selfishness and our rejection of him. He longs for us to turn to him and be satisfied in him. So the judgment of God will move in the church, that refining judgment, and it will purify us. And God does that because he loves us that much. And when it moves in the world, of course, it will either draw people to God or it will condemn them if they resist it. Verse 18 makes the same point, quoting from Psalm, uh, sorry, Proverbs 11. I wanted to wrap that up quickly, but let me finish. What's the take-home message from this passage, if you like? Well, firstly, that trials are inevitable. Yes, they are. We should not be surprised by them. Uh, we should not be the cause of them, nor should we be defeated by them. Uh, so if you like, this is the, the concluding point. Verse 19, look at it if you then. So then, those that suffer according to God's uh, will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to go- do good. So we're to commit ourselves to God. Why the creator God? I mean, simply because we're created, created for his glory. So we're to commit ourselves to glorify him. Commit as you live, prepared for the inevitable suffering that will come. We're to follow the Lord Jesus Christ and live for Christ, giving the reason for the hope that we have, as we've seen in 1 Peter 3. Continuing to do good is the phrase used here in verse 19. Does it frighten you? Well, it frightens me. But as one great preacher said this, those who dive in the sea of affliction bring up the rarest of pearls. You see, those who mock us those who reject our invitations over the next few weeks, those who berate uh, our faith, those who try to suppress our faith, whether it's in policies and government or just in the workplace, saying that any kind of exclusive claims of uh, the Lord Jesus are to be kind of pushed down in a secular, pluralistic culture like ours. Well, those people know nothing of those rare pearls 
and the glory of Christ. That, you see, that what we have is the enviable life. Though there may be suffering now, there is pearls of glory now, but will always be forever. So as you live it, we're to proclaim it. And we are to know that, as I quoted from Spurgeon, the tears of affliction are often needed to keep the eye of faith bright. So do not be surprised by trials. Do not be the cause of them and do not be defeated by them. But rather know that the tears that we may have to go through are needed to keep our faith, our eyes of faith, bright. Let's pray as we close. Heavenly Father, again, we do recall those in our hearts and our minds that we've been praying for already, that we long to come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord and Saviour. And Lord, we know that in our part, all we need to do is be your ambassadors to, um, with gentleness and respect, give the reason for the hope that we have in you. Lord, we know that as we do that, this passage is clear, it is sobering that we will face painful trials and suffering. But help us in those trials to, to rise above them, to rejoice in them, knowing that we are suffering because of you and with you. And so we long for that day that when all our trials and suffering will end. And as the Bible ends, we pray, come Lord Jesus, because we long to know the glory that we have a taste of now, that we're blessed in now. But we long for that glory when we meet you face to face. But please help us to be responsible in the time that we have to make you known, to give you the glory that you deserve. Please help us to commit ourselves to you, our faithful wonderful creator God. Amen.